0: This episode of Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets.
1: And at Zupan's right now, you've got some special New Year's savings uh, heading into 2021. We'll start with uh, sashimi-grade wild ahi tuna, save $3 a pound. And I am glad to see, and I just purchased this this week, Harris Ranch uh, ground beef, uh, the 91% lean ground beef, saved three bucks a pound down to $6 a pound. And I've been feeding, you know, my doggie is now 16 years old. And his his this year, he's going to be eating a lot of ground beef, straight up, no dog food. So it's been nice to get that. Although I don't think getting some Texas ruby red grapefruit, five for $5 is... Um, is going to benefit him. I don't think he's going to like that. Do you, Cor?
0: I I doubt it. I'm not not sure the dogs are into citrus the way humans (laughs) might be.
1: Uh, Right, but I am, and those are great. Right,
0: they are great. Make sure you are a member of the News Feed. That's where you get a uh, uh, weekly, if not sometimes bi-weekly, email uh, with certain discounts and specials going on at your local Zoo Bands this weekend only, that being January 8th through the 10th. Uh, Buy one or more. Get one free steelhead filet. Uh, So there is a coupon if you've signed up right there in your uh, email uh, signing up for that. Uh, And, of course, as you mentioned, all sorts of other great deals going on there. You mentioned the tuna earlier, Chris. I I just wanted to point this out. Uh, For a lot of years, they had the Poke Bar, which uh, in the current climate they're not doing. But they are making the Poke Materials the thing to make your Poke Bowl available to you. And so earlier this week on Monday night, uh, I swung by Zupan's grabbed all the fixins for a poke bowl and that's what we ate and it's a new family favorite to to eat as a family uh and they they take pretty much take care of everything for you you've got all the different things that you need the marinated seaweed uh the different types of tuna that you can get some uh like a cucumber salad oh it was good
1: not only that but the ready to heat meals at Zupans, the whole case of things that are ready to be warmed or even some of the salads and the deli meats is fantastic and i don't think you can do better in one shot to stock your refrigerator um, when you're shopping than you can at Zoo Pans. So
0: true. Three locations to serve you. McAdam, West Burnside, Lake Oswego, and always where, Chris?
1: ZooPans.com.
0: All right, it's time once again. Portland's food scene podcast. It's right at the fork with your host Chris Angelus from Portland Food Adventures.
1: And over on the other side of this, the the Zoomy or the Media, the Google Meet is um, Court Johnson.
0: Yeah, we we switched it up a little bit how we're chatting uh, to each other uh, this time around. It's it's year eight, Chris. Year eight of right at the fork.
1: I can't believe that you've said it's time once again. Uh, for Portland's Food Scene Podcast for now seven complete years. This starts year eight. And I just looked, we've done, well, we've done more than that because we used to do the sound bites. And uh, we also, of course, have the Joy of Drinking podcast that releases through our channel. But we've done 262 episodes up until now, the last one being a great one everybody should listen to with Gary Okazaki. Um, to recap 2020 but we start 2021 uh, with Kurt Huffman who's been a guest quite a few times and I thought it would be a great idea to catch up with him and see if his tone had changed from the last time since the last time we chatted with him right when the pandemic started and he was in a bit of a panic and I can't say he's still he's he feels out of the woods but you can tell he's gotten used to being stressed and figuring things out, and of course pivoting. So, and just for those who don't know, Kurt Huffman owns Chef's Table uh, Group. Uh, I guess he's the CEO, and um, he—they have a lot of restaurants around town, including Saint Jack, Lardo, Grasa, Ox. Um, I can't go into all of them because I I probably should be looking at it, but we'll provide a link in the show notes so you can see all the restaurants. They also have some things that are opening that we talked about, which is a revamped ping. And, uh, what I'm excited about is, uh, Chef's Table bought the Tasty, more than just the name, the whole brand from, uh, the Gorham's. Um, so Tasty, there will be a new Tasty restaurant, it won't be sons, daughters or Alter but it will be opening up um, and with um, some folks who are very familiar with what the Gorms were doing at Tasty. So um, there was a lot to catch up with Kurt about in terms of just general industry thoughts and what's going to happen with the Portland food world uh, going forward and what he feels will succeed and what may not. And uh, also specifically with regard to what they're doing, because there's always quite a few things and it's good to hear. So um, we thought that would be a good way to catch up. You can probably look back and see four. Or five, what do you think, Kurt? Four or five episodes with Kurt Huffman over at, the year. At
0: least I was going to say, uh, other than Gary, I think Kurt has appeared on the podcast the most. Um, and yeah. and what's, what's great about when Kurt is on, there's always not just one, but a few nuggets of information that, that comes out during the conversation where he kind of foresees the, the future of, of the Portland food scene. And and granted, I haven't listened to this, this episode yet. I'll be listening to it with everybody else. Um, But uh, it, it, he, he, I think him being in a position uh, as, you know, running chef's table um, that he's able to kind of see things that some restaurant owners and chefs aren't able to see just because of the, the sheer number of, places that he's involved in so um
1: you, well you, he's got a lot of experience yes so, and that so he's got that so for instance we talk about what will succeed now if you go back on some of the episodes fast casual was something that he had a hand in early on with lardo and then grasa and then xlb which i didn't mention earlier um which are doing okay as he explains through the pandemic and they're set up for it and they've taken some of the benefits to the restaurateur and to diners uh, of fast casual and really push the envelope. For instance, just being able to order online, you have to go in now and there's no one at a register to take your order, you do it on your phone or before you leave your house. So those are things that he hadn't even foreseen when they went to fast casual you know where you take a, a number and then they bring you the meal um so anyway we talk about that and it's it's quite interesting and the one thing that i did not i asked him about but i gave him the the choice to reveal it or not was the cost of the purchasing the rights to tasty and uh we didn't actually get that number but I'm sure it'll come out sometime down the road. And if we can find it, we'll publish it. I'm just curious about it. It's really nobody's business, but it's to me, as Kurt says, it was the busiest restaurant in Portland. So to buy the rights to that, I'm just curious as to what that costs in Portland, Oregon in 2020. And it's not just the name, it's the menu. It's the whole whole package. So, um, which I learned on the podcast, I thought it was just the name. So um, at any rate, so I apologize to our guests for not probing, but again, this is not 60 minutes, and I did give Kurt the option, and he didn't necessarily have to spell out I'm answering this or not. He didn't, and we moved on, So, which I'm accused of often of moving on before we get somewhere in a topic, but I view the podcast as a conversation, and uh, I don't have a... Generally, I don't have a list of questions. I have some ideas on what we're going to talk about and kind of let things go the way they go. And I hope people like the podcast to share it and subscribe, Court. There's our New Year's resolution. Yes.
0: Invite people (laughs) to like, subscribe, and share.
1: Right. And so uh, we appreciate in our eighth year that people are actually still listening to this podcast and sharing it and uh, we hope enjoying it and we have guests who still look forward to coming on and publicists that still write us asking us if we can get their clients on and so forth so that's good Um, we're happy and of course we're happy for our sponsors going into our eighth year, Zupan's Markets and Ringside Steakhouse. They've been great. We're proud to have them as sponsors because they're great businesses. We feel very comfortable showcasing and endorsing. So uh, a shout out to all the folks at Zupan's and Ringside that are responsible for helping to bring all these stories in Portland uh, to the forefront with our podcast. And thanks to you also, Court for um for being here to engineer this in the middle of the pandemic it's I don't know has this been easier or harder i would imagine way- in ways it's been easier uh,
0: a little it's been a little of both I mean there's I think a lot of companies are realizing that's kind of forced them to streamline some stuff that they probably should have streamlined a long time ago I mean you talk about companies that that have the ability to allow their people to work remotely I think that's going to be one of the big changes we're going to see moving out of the pandemic is A lot of people are going to stay home, which is, I think, good and bad if you're a restaurant that relies on that lunch crowd. Um, Right. But, um, yeah, no, it's been, been, you know, different circumstances force you to try different things, and and if you do it right, you're learning stuff. So uh, my skill set has definitely upgraded over the past nine, ten months.
1: Right. I don't know if mine has. I, I don't have any skill sets so I have no improvement so but I have learned to in the beginning I was kind of fighting doing this remotely I really like coming in the studio and being in the studio with a guest yeah um, and it gave me good reason to go into Portland and I really like the offices and, um, and I hope we can do that again someday on the other hand I'm looking at the Pacific Ocean right now oh yeah so, Um, Nothing wrong with that. And I still haven't even gotten dressed uh, (laughs) yet. So there you go. So by the way, this podcast was recorded on January 5th, 2021 um, with Kurt. So it is our first recording of the new year. And we'll look forward to more episodes um, as we go. But right now, first things first, Kurt Huffman of Chef's Table.
2: Right at the fork is supported by Zupan's Markets. Whether you're an expert chef or a connoisseur of great cuisine, Zupan's Markets has been the number one destination for the food and wine lovers of Portland and beyond for over 40 years. West Burnside, McAdam, and Lake Oswego or zupans.com. Ringside Steakhouse. It's time again to slice into the best steaks and service available in Portland. Seating is now available by reservation only for indoor and outdoor dining at ringsidesteakhouse.com. And check out the newly opened New England style fish and ship spot with a Northwest personality, Rock Paper Fish. A partnership between the Peterson family and Portland icon Micah Camden in the Old Boxer Ramen space on East Burnside for takeout only and by Portland Food Adventures. Cabin fever? Book a fantastic culinary vacation in 2021 with podcast host, Chris Angelus. Experience the best of Basque Country with Javier Cantares of Urdaneta or Western Sicily with Taste of Italy's Austria Enzyme. Wet your appetite and get more information at portlandfoodadventures.com or contact Red at the Fork host, Chris Angelus for more details.
1: Good. Are you so you're on a long road trip now? I am. Uh,
3: I decided I needed to get out of Portland and for good. Kind of, uh, no.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, you wouldn't be the first one to get out for good.
3: There's just uh, a real consensus that the city has just completely failed us. Um, and, uh, you know, so I think there's, uh, there's people like andy who just couldn't be more pleased that they got the hell out <laughs> you know um and he, he texts me uh frequently saying how pleased he is to not be here anymore
1: well he not um, only got out of the city or in the state he got out of the country too so yes and we're talking yeah, about making, andy ricker
3: yeah yeah so he uh he's gone um you know, and he was one of my favorite people. So pretty, uh, yeah, it's just a whole, yeah, it's just a whole new landscape, right?
1: That's right. He was, when you, Whiskey Soda Lounge, that was one of your earlier projects, was it not?
3: The first one was ping. yep. I mean, I helped, we met when he started Pock pock, and, you um, know, he needed help uh, initially with finances because he, was way over budget on his build Had financed it, you know, with credit cards and other things. And, um, you know, he needs some help. And so I, uh, so we worked together for, for the two years that I was in business school. Um, we just worked on Pock Pock. And when I was finishing business school, he asked me to partner, uh, to do another restaurant because John Jay, who was at Wyden Kennedy at the time, wanted to do something in old town chinatown to start and what he thought was a revitalization of uh, that part of town which is pretty depressing in (laughs) retrospect but you know so john and janet jay had contacted him about coming into chinatown uh, where we eventually uh opened ping um so we started working on that my second year business school and you know literally i graduated I took my mom on a trip and then I moved to Portland and we started working on it. And we opened in January of 2009. Um, And then we did whiskey soda lounge and foster burger together. um, Right at the same time that I was opening up Gruner with Chris Israel. So we kind of did all of those as a clump together. And um, yeah, so we, you know, I loved working with Andy. He was, he was a very, very funny guy.
1: So this all seems so going to be a bummer. It feels like ancient history when you mentioned Foster Burger and Gruner. and yeah, and, that's right. I mean, it was a long yeah, time where ago. we met,
3: where we met the caramelized onions.
1: Well, I yeah, was that very was. Angry oh, about those. We met over those. <laughs> it wasn't the caramel. I don't know if it was the caramelized onions. It was the Yelp reviews on the wall that I wrote you. About. Yeah, <laughs> dude, you guys aren't. Yeah. Yet. You aren't ready to start mocking your customers just yet. So um,
3: Yeah, just yet. It's <laughs> just so depressing. I mean, that was back in the day where you just felt like a prisoner, you know, because people would come in and shit all over you for, you know, working hard and having what we thought was a pretty good product. And, uh, you know, so it just it was, it's just exhausting to, you know, read these things about people just saying that you're terrible. And. You know, blah 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 and so that was our way of kind of saying you know giving them the finger
1: Just, yeah you know, no I know mean, yeah, well, my my yes yeah, so I guess maybe it was a caramelized onions I don't remember what it was but I I wrote you because I said well I didn't have quite the best experience so I don't know if you're ready yeah. to start mocking everybody but uh, I would imagine <laughs> that at this stage of the game 10 years later that you would have to be a little bit callous and immune to Yelp reviews, much like an actor probably doesn't want to read critics uh, any longer. Is that something, and especially during this pandemic, it's very hard to be critical of anybody, but I'm sure they are. People are pissed off, and they're ornery because they haven't been able to get out much. I guess that's happening.
3: Yeah, so I'll unpack that. I think there's two things. One is that Um, I ask my partners not to read the Yelp uh, reviews because it really does uh, um, irritate them. And I've kind of gotten calloused over the years. Uh, And my opinion about Yelp is I'm, I'm glad it's around because every now and then there's a nugget that comes out of it that's helpful. You know, when people are genuinely, when they're like one star, if they're one star and angry about something, usually something happened. And about 50% of the time, it's because they're horribly entitled people, and they just demand you know, to have everything they want, and they just kind of throw a temper tantrum if they don't get it in a way that they want. And the other half of the time, there's something true there, right? There's a service issue or personnel issue. So it's really good to keep track of that, because every now and then, some really important stuff comes out of it that allows us either to identify you know, staff that need to kind of get coached into doing things differently. Uh, You know, if you hear a description of somebody two or three times in Yelp as providing terrible customer experience, well, there's got to be something there that you you can talk about. It doesn't mean you fire the person. It means that you just say, look, you know, clearly there's behavior here that's irritating a bunch of different kinds of people. And, you know, let's work on that. Um, And then, there's also sometimes some good things that you can bring out of it in terms of policies that you have, you know, for instance, at ping, Andy was insistent on us selling the skewers by the pair. It was not possible to buy a skewer, but you could add a single skewer. So you get two of one kind and then add a, a different kind. So, and we had so many reviews about how idiotic it was and it was idiotic, right? In retrospect, it's just like, who cares? You know, we should just get let people do a selection of six. And he was so afraid of us having this huge backlog of skewers that we wouldn't be able to survive. And that just wasn't true. But he was, you know, one of the things that makes a great chef is is being stubborn, um, and insisting on doing things a certain way, you know. And so we we we, we stuck to the guns there right to the bitter end. And I wish we had listened to the Yelp reviews, you know, of people just venting about something that is very silly right so so and you know i i i I don't mind yelp at all uh you know and i i understand it and but it's also i i understand also how people get livid about it um and uh because when people are just saying awful things that aren't true you know that feels like that feels totally unfair to give people a forum to do that right and I, I understand that. And I, and I equally hate it, but you know, it's like, you got to take it, it, just, it's out there. Right. So you just got to take the good with the bad. Um, and then the second part of what you said was about COVID and people. And, you know, in general, I'm incredulous when people get livid with us because of our policies. Right. And they just lose their mind uh, about not being able to sit on site uh, or, you know, only being able to order uh, with uh, online. So Largo and Grossa, for instance, only take online orders. You go in, you order, you pay for it, uh, and then you come in and get it. And we do that so we can keep our staff limited. Uh, and so we don't have to process transactions when people show up. You know, we don't want our staff to have to take money from people and, and or take cards from people and swipe them and everything. You just, you order ahead of time. Nowadays, if you have a smartphone or you have access to a computer, you can order online. But man, we get a lot of people uh, and not a lot, I mean, you know, six or seven over the course of you know COVID. But it just feels like, God, I mean, who are these people? And you're really going to get, always say it in a way where it's just, this is rotten customer service and yada yada. And you just feel like, all right, you know what, just go somewhere else. Um,
1: They they just don't, they don't realize what everybody's going through, of course. No.
3: And those are the people that you actually, I feel embarrassed about because I feel like this is a town that should embrace and support the restaurant scene because of how special it's been. And when those people come in demanding that, you know, it be like a McDonald's or like a Kentucky fried chicken, you just feel like, yeah, you know, why don't you go somewhere else? We don't, we don't need your business.
1: Well, it's interesting that you talk about that because uh, you know you've been on the podcast quite a few times, and most recently, I believe, late March, early April, and boy, things were gloomy then. And I want to get—I <laughs> want to talk to you about you know obviously the main reason I wanted to have you on is what's transpired in those eight months. But you know, long ago, you, we were talking about equalizing the front and the back of the house and making things work for restaurateurs. And one of the things was really working on honing the fast casual model and getting people used to things like that. And now this virus has forced you to go on the extreme side of that, not just ordering and getting a spoon to take with you to your table, but ordering online and skipping that entire personnel situation right up front. So it's allowed you to try the extreme. I don't know whether you think that's the way the model is going to stay when we're no longer wearing masks and things hopefully get back to normal, or it just allowed you to push the envelope and see how far you could go with it.
3: Well, the places that have thrived, like when you're talking about like the industry at large, uh, are the people that were already driving very heavily into. Um, these, uh, you know, online ordering uh, technologies uh, and ghost kitchen technologies, right? Or it's not ghost kitchen, it's not really a technology. It's just kind of a different strategy of getting food to people. Um, and those places, uh, if you look at the groups nationally that are growing, you know, like the chains, those are the ones that have done really well in driving orders online and, you know, getting food out to people very efficiently, because they've been able to capture a lot of market share um, through that. And you know, we we really weren't driving that. I think my partners and I all are in the business because we like people and we like seeing people and providing a great guest experience in, on site. And almost all of us thought the idea of a ghost kitchen was pretty unattractive, not from a business perspective, but just kind of emotionally, you know, philosophically, what's interesting about making food for somebody that you can never even see. Right. Uh, we've always done to go and we had to do it, but the core business is about, you know, creating a great experience for people. And, you know, and we put a lot of thought into how we create that experience for everybody, even in the fast casual setting, you know, with Grossa for instance, we're trying to do, and I think we do execute a super high end restaurant dining experience, food experience, uh, because the, I think the pastas are, you know, they're a $15 pasta that would sell for $25 in any other restaurant that sit down provide that kind of homemade, uh, you know, scratch kitchen, whatever you want to call it, food experience. But it's, you know, at a severe discount because it's uh, counter service, right? Somebody brings the food to you. Um, but you have to wait in line often, and it's not, uh, it's highbrow. But I think it introduces Families, for instance, with kids, to a quality of food that they might not feel comfortable getting otherwise, because you got, you know, you got your four-year-old with you, and they don't want to go and all the time and have fantastic pasta dish. At, insert the name of, you know, high-end restaurant, uh, but you can get that same quality of food. So we like that dynamic, and so we like what counter service allowed us to do. Um, but uh, you know, now with COVID we're seeing that there's advantages to those, those types of restaurants as well. And by far in our group, the, the places that have suffered the least are the ones that had counter service and were already exploring you know, a pretty robust to-go package. And we had all that stuff set up just because you know, we thought, let's get those incremental additional sales uh, by having Grubhub or Caviar or whatever it is available because we can manage it. Um, with, you know impacting the guest experience. But having all that infrastructure in place and being restaurants that people are accustomed to seeing to go, that, all of that just made it that those places, Lardo, Grasa, XLB, really have excelled uh, in, during our closure. And by excelled, I mean they have paid the bills, right? It's not right. like we're printing money. We're, we're at peace. Right, we're, we're able to make it work, and with uh, when PPP came through, that helped us, uh, you know, kind of batten down the hatches and feel like we can wait this thing out. Um, uh, the sit down restaurants are a completely different story, um, uh, because it's been difficult to pivot the oxes, the Agnes St. Jacques Lamoule, um, Cooper's Hall to a, a model where, uh, you know, the menus we do, you know, the menus that Aaron Barnett does or Greg and Gabby Denton do you know, they've been able to make a success of the to-go business with the meal kits and so forth, but it's, it's so much work um, and it's often difficult to figure out if it's worth it uh, as opposed to just closing and, and waiting it out. Um, there's no question it's worth it at Lardo, Grasa, and so forth, but it's, a, it's an open debate for us to know whether it's worth it to do it at those restaurants and right now, and the real reason we have a place like St. Jack open is that we have amazing staff and really talented staff uh, that we want to keep and hold on to. And so we're okay losing money than we would if we were closed just to invest in keeping that staff on site. But, you know, when you look at Greg and Gabby closing with their restaurants, I think that's financially a very a smart move because it's, it's just a nightmare uh, to, to do sit-down dining right now, you know the rules change all the time. We invest tens of thousands of dollars into air purification systems, you know, uh, plexiglass things everywhere in the restaurants. Uh, all these, you know, PPE um, policies and, and equipment for the staff, the training, and you know, you do all of that. Uh, create covered outdoor, cover heated outdoor spaces blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, the governor mandate comes in and shuts you down again and you just feel like you know, you're just beating your head against the wall. So emotionally the opening, closing, opening, closing struggle is incredibly taxing. Um, and so I don't know that the places that worked super hard to stay open, uh, you know, that are sit down dining, if it's, it's going to, you know, the jury's out, whether it was worth it emotionally, Because we get through this thing and whenever that happens, you know, June, you know, there's a lot of there'll be a lot of uh, emotional scars, you know, because it's been it's been pretty hellacious. And um, and when we do reopen, uh, you know, we've had guests come in that demand that the experience be more or less like it was before. And you just feel like, man, you know, it's just it's not what it was before. You know, and you, everybody has to be patient and you have to deal with the fact that, you know, we're running with tighter staff and, and some people just don't want to put up with it. You know, they just want to feel like, Hey, if you're open, you're giving me the experience that I, you know, that I had before. And it's not exactly the experience they had before, you know, and, uh, there's just, and then when you get that feedback from certain guests who just, you know, beat you over the brow, uh, you know, you just stared. at them like, don't, don't you understand what's going on right now? You know, don't, don't you, don't you see what's happening around you? Like, why are you behaving like this when, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic and our staff is afraid and, you know, we're doing our best here, but, you know, that doesn't motivate you to stay open. So, um,
1: well, some people are just naturally empathetic and some just aren't and won't ever be. And there are a lot of narcissists out there. And I'm sure that, one doesn't even need to be a narcissist to be selfish about their food yeah. and what they expect. Yeah, no, I agree. So you're not going to be able to circumvent that at all. You're going to have that no matter what. So, yeah. Uh,
3: yeah. So I think, uh, you know, we just try to encourage staff to keep their heads up and feel like this is, if ever there was an opportunity to hone your hospitality skills, yeah. you know, to invest in your black belt in hospitality, right. now is the time because the people that are the worst are truly the super worst. And so, you know, this is our chance to you know, to fine tune those skills, you know, provide great service even to the worst kind of people. And, um, you know, that should be our goal. Um, And, uh, but, you know, it doesn't mean that it's enjoyable to have your head shut in the door. Right. It's like, you feel terrible each time, (laughs) no matter how much you smile.
1: Well, part of that is just learning not so much, not, I mean, in addition to being great with customer service is just having thicker skin because you can't let it bother you. So, yeah. uh, you know, you can let it bother you if you really knew you did make an error and you fix it, but overall it's a little tough. So Kurt, I'm, you know, we, we just referenced the, your appearance here about uh, when the pot, when the pandemic first started, and I dare say I haven't gone back and listened to it. As a matter of fact, most of those episodes that we ran when it first started, and we called those uh, right at the moment, uh, after right. a while, we get we couldn't run them. We just didn't want to be so negative. I mean, it was all about disaster. And, right. Human uh, gloom. <laughs> yeah. It, it came, it, we took about a month off running repeats because we didn't have a lot positive to talk about, and we just sort of thought, let's – Give everybody a little break from this, but when you came on you know i 've known you fairly yeah, ten years now, and you had a fairly uh, nervous sound to your voice and i think I think that's being uh conservative. You were really worried, you talked about going bankrupt, you talked about not being able to make it so Eight months have passed. A lot has happened, and a lot hasn't happened since then. How would you recap your your business feelings now compared to then?
3: Oh boy, it's. um, I mean, the experience for everybody has been one of trying to digest the unknowns, and um, and you know, I think societally, that's what we've all gone through. Um, I think that there's, I think the surprising number of industries that have remained very robust in all of this, you know, and I think what we've seen is that really the industries that have been the hardest hit are everything having to do with, um, places that people gather, right. Restaurants and bars are one movie theaters, concert halls, you know, event venues. I mean, uh, the airlines, Uh, these are, these places have been absolutely pummeled. Um, and, uh, I think that within our sector, within hospitality, uh, you know, I think it's been encouraging to see how well to go food has done. I don't think any of us expected it to be able to sustain us. Uh, but we've also discovered a lot about ourselves and how lean we can run a business. And so, you know the positive that's come out of all this is that we've really had to explore how we operate, how we can operate, and we've we've been forced to do things that before we would have we would have been afraid to do. but now we have to do it. We have to find efficiencies uh, so that we don't go under. so the positive, I think is that it's 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 cut a lot of fluff out of the business and um, is going to make us uh, a so leaner, meaner industry once we come out of this. So that for me is you know, I'm always looking for silver lining. So that would be a silver lining. Um, But, you know, I don't, it's, it's been as bad as I thought it could be um, emotionally, certainly. Uh, It's just, things are changing every week. You don't know what the visibility is. I mean, think about the news in the last week, right? Oh, thank God we have a vaccine coming out. Uh, It's 95% effective. So, this is good. Oh, but wait, there's some new virus strain in Great Britain that's, you know, x times more uh, you know, that's x times faster spreading than the current one. So now we have a risk of things getting even worse, And now the vaccines not getting distributed in a way that's as efficient. It was supposed to be 20 million doses by JN1. We're going to be at like five million. Uh, so you just have this, you know, hopeful news, terrible news. And it just feels impossible to know what to do except for maintaining kind of, uh, you know, an irrational optimism, which is something that I uh, uh, specialize in, uh, because I don't know how you survive, survive being in the food industry for the whole life if you don't remain permanently optimistic. Um, And, you know, so you just have to believe that we'll get through it. And you just don't at this point, I think all of us are just resigned to saying, you know, what's going to fail is going to fail. What's going to survive is going to survive. Let's just hold on and ride this out. Uh, Whereas before I was trying to find angles to maybe do better or, you know, maybe find a way to like slingshot out of this, you know, time time the recovery just right so we can be ready to go and, you know, bring on new people and be really strong. But now it's like, you know, before I thought, until last week, I really thought, okay, June, July, we're good. You know, vaccine's going to be here. We're going to be at a critical mass of people having taken it where we're good. And now it's, I just have, you know, I don't know. You know 50, yeah. Some 50% of all people say they don't want to take the vaccine. You're just like, oh, my God. Like, what else, what other, what other, you know, things do we have to confront? You know, some super vaccine. It's like the murder hornets of you know, the murder hornet, sorry, of of COVID are coming out in Great Britain. You you're like, God, this is just a nightmare. And uh, so, I mean, I remain optimistic. I know that the the vast majority of what we have in our, you know, my partners that will survive, will be okay. Um, I'm anxious to see how long the hangover lasts. You know, are we okay as of this upcoming summer? Or is it really going to take, you know, until next year, you know, 2022, to, where people feel comfortable? Because ultimately, it's not about the status, I think, of public health as much as it is about the status of people's uh, ability to feel safe and go right. back out again. I mean, that, that determines where we are as an industry. And if that takes a year and a half to get back, then, you know, we'll continue just to limp along until then. Um, I can tell you that Portland is living through COVID in a way that's very different from other, uh, other cities, you know, even close into Portland, uh, go to hood river, for instance, on a Friday night or Oregon city on a Friday night and, uh, compare that to you know Portland. And it's a, it's very different. Uh, right now I'm on a road trip, um, in this camper to go see family, uh, and then go on just to go with my daughter uh, through the South uh, just to kind of see things that, you know, we want to go to see together. And uh, you know, people just, people are living it very, very differently, even in liberal towns in red States, you know, Bozeman, Montana, uh, Omaha, Nebraska, you know, the only, the only Biden vote, right. electoral vote in Nebraska is at Omaha and these blue cities are completely different. You know, gyms are open. Uh, but their rates aren't that much different than Portland and uh, but they're just living it very differently. You know, the restaurants are open. um, And so it's, you know, my hope is that we come back uh, quickly once, once people feel safe. Uh, And I'm not sure if Portland will, I know Omaha will, I know Bozeman will,
1: you know,
3: those people are anxious to get back out there. Um, And, but I just hope our city is, 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 be able to come back quickly um, as soon as they feel safe.
0: Hey, Chris, let's pause here a moment to talk about one of our favorite places in Portland to eat, Ringside Steakhouse.
1: Right there on West Burnside, uh, while they not, may not be offering the in-restaurant dining because of the current regulations that keep changing, they are offering a smoked baby back pork rib meal kit for two. Which includes ringside seasoning salt, chopped Caesar salad, red potato salad, truffle mac and cheese, and some oatmeal chocolate chip cookies as well. So that is uh, all they're ordering this week. That's for pickup January 9th from 12 to 2. They usually have their takeout, and that will begin. uh, They're not doing that up until January 12th, and they'll begin after that. So you go online at... Uh, steakhouse.com and see what takeout food they have for you uh, after that and then hopefully in due time you'll be able to make reservations to dine in the beautiful restaurant which has been updated to pandemic standards and looks beautiful as a result with all the plexiglass between the booths and of course uh, lots of expensive ventilation that's gone into uh, the restaurant and train staff and employees to make your visit once you can go back in as comfortable as possible.
0: Mm -hmm. So there's really no reason for you to not eat delicious food, first of all, but also uh, continue to support a Portland institution with Ringside Steakhouse. Uh, You can get all the information that Chris just mentioned on their website, ringsidesteakhouse.com.
1: Well, you have to imagine you've got a a city that was very used to going out to eat, you know, our restaurants were a large part of life in Portland. And so you have to imagine there's pent up demand and people want to get out. But it's also not just uh, the virus that's been an issue in Portland. It's been, you know, especially for downtown restaurants, it's been just physical safety and vandalism and what it looks like, Uh, politics. Uh, Portland has experienced this uh, portland experience 2020 in a different way than many other cities did not all but many um so uh, i think a lot of that's a factor and i don't know how quickly that's going to go away especially for downtown restaurants that's
3: uh yeah downtown i wouldn't open a restaurant downtown portland for at least another year year and a half um, you know the people, and it's a little bit controversial to talk about how much impact the protests have had um, on the restaurant scene. But I think that the, the 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 way I would walk people through that is to say, um, thirty thirty five percent of our business in downtown Portland um, was from tourists. That's everywhere from you know the West End where Agnes is, and where you know Casey and Alder. Well, whiskey library, all those places up there, into the Pearl, all the way down to where Vitali had Imperial. That whole area in there is a the third. Every person I've talked to said at least a third of our guests were tourists, didn't live there. Um, and the way that the city uh, managed—not the protests, but the violence after the protests—even though people lived here in Portland, you know, we we lived through it. We know that. I most of the time I didn't even know it was happening. Um, but, uh, I'm on also on the board of travel Portland and, you know, the data that our people at travel Portland show us is that there are uh, almost hundred thousand articles written about the violence in Portland. And they're always getting shots of the same stuff. You know, this micro group of people confronting police, people burning every single night, you know, trash, you know, dumpsters. I mean, it's just dumb, isolated events. Uh, but uh, from a brand perspective, from Portland as a destination brand perspective, it's been devastating, and you know they are saying that the, the tourism levels won't return to what they were until you know, at least 2024. So we're talking about three years of massively depressed tourism, and when that's a third of all your clients downtown, that you can't lose a third of your clients and keep the same business you have. It just doesn't work. You know, you can't go down 35%. And so for restaurants, those destination restaurants that were providing a really great level of service, you know, their, their business models have to be completely rethought. Um, and, uh, and that's going to have a long lasting effect, uh, on the downtown area. And I think inner Southeast as well, you know, there's, we, we have, we've had nights, Bar King was the restaurant we had to close recently, permanently. And we had nights where we were doing delivery with Bar King when protests were happening. And the food delivery services shut down their services because we were identified at 6th and Alder, Southeast 6th and Alder, as being a dangerous place to drive. Right. So they didn't want to send their their drivers to Southeast 6th and Alder, even though there wasn't a protester anywhere within a you know, 20 block radius of us. Do so you right. have, you know, it's just, and, and honestly, the, per, the people to blame, you know, is just city leadership, that they are solely responsible for this. Um, and I think now that Wheeler, our mayor has been reelected, you know, now he's grown a pair and is, is, is being much more proactive in, in dealing with it. But it's pretty embarrassing. You know, we really, we really, uh, we really uh, uh, did not live up to the moment. Uh, In knowing how to both defend our values uh, in terms of making sure that people could protest peacefully, but also protect the community and the businesses in the community by, you know, by saying any kind of violence is not okay. And we even had a mayoral candidate here in the city that was saying, you know, maybe, maybe violence needs to happen if nobody's listening. You know, those to me are just totally bonkers positions to have. Uh, And, you know, there are people on the city uh, members of the city uh, uh, council that still to this day refuse to say that there was violence after any of the protests. And you just feel like, man, we are just totally, totally disconnected from reality. And so um, I hope that I I hope that tourism returns. You know, it's so critical for our downtown hotels and hotels have become an important part of the Portland food scene. You think about Bullard. You think about Imperial. You think about, uh, I forget the name of the place that Jose Chase had just opened.
1: I see ya. Um,
3: Yeah. And you think about places like that. These are great, important restaurants that are just getting pummeled. And, uh, you know, it's it's pretty depressing. So, um, yeah. So Portland will have a much longer hangover than other cities because our tourism is just going to get pummeled much more. Uh, than cities that we quote-unquote compete with, you know, uh, like Denver's or Austin's or places like that.
1: Right. Well, and also over the past few years, I just marveled at how many hotels were going into Portland compared to what was there 10 years ago. It was, I don't know the numbers, but I mean, oh, my God, they built a whole hotel industry around food pretty much. Yeah. You know, because – there's a lot in Portland and Oregon, but let's, let's face it, food TV had a lot to do with it and celebrity chefs and the Gregory Bourdais of the world really brought uh, the spotlight on the Portland. And now, yeah, it's kind of uh, like drunk on that. And uh, yeah, you're right. Hangover is a proper, proper terminology. So um, we hope that comes back. I wanna talk a little bit about Chef's Table because yes. the company itself has been doing some interesting things. One of the things that I just noted was, um, and I'm sure there are some other things you want to talk about as well, but buying the Tasty name from the Gorums and opening up a uh, Tasty in Lake Oswego, that's an interesting, yep. um, an interesting situation. You know, I'm tempted because first thing is You know, we want to know how much did it cost for the Tasty name? John spent so many years building equity in that brand and doing a great job. And I don't want to get into a John and Renee Gorham discussion here. Um, I I feel terrible that they're not in the city any longer, but I'm glad to see them uh, being able to sustain in some way. And if it's selling their name that they built, spent so long building, great. But um, talk to me a little bit about your thinking on that, and if you want to give us a little ballpark on I mean, what that tasty name was worth, I'd love to know. But if you don't, that's fine too. I respect that. But um, yeah, what your plans are for that?
3: Yeah, I mean, I. So first of all, when you know, I I was uh, I partnered with John in the past um, at uh, Inner Urban, is a project we did together, and uh, you know, loved it. Um love working with him and Renee. Um and uh it just, you know, I thought John was one of the, the great culinary minds of our city and had a huge amount of respect for what he was able to do uh with a place like uh, Tasty and, and Toro Bravo. Um and just, you know, he really in certain ways kind of uh rethought how uh, a small foodie operation could operate. And the proof was in the kinds of numbers uh, that they could do of clients per day. And we, 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 in terms of the time it takes to have a person come in and leave, in our industry, we call that the turn time, like how long it takes to turn a table. And I just never seen anything like what he was able to do at a place that was still kind of a foodie destination. You know, when you, when you talk about places like Keith Chang's or whatever, you know, they have very, very fast turn times, but they're designed to, you know, just boom, 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 you know, people in and out many is built that way, but I'd never seen a place that was both foodie and, uh, and had that ability to get, you know, get food in front of people immediately. And when you sat down at Toro Bravo and you ordered, it's like 30 seconds later, you're already starting to eat. You know, it was just amazing. And it was good. Um, And he had really fine tuned that in a way that no other chef in Portland had ever done and still hasn't figured out. Um, And so huge respect for that. And then of course, he just, as a culinary mind, he just was really working at the highest levels. Um, And he just, he understood things about food that very few chefs in our city uh, understand. Um, And so in any case, when, Everything uh, went uh, went the way it did for them. Um, I had been working with uh, one of his uh, uh, chefs, um, uh, thinking about opening a concept that he had, uh, which is actually open now. He wanted to reboot Ping, and we, <laughs> we rebooted it. Right now it's a go-only concept, but eventually we're going to open it. And he really wanted to do that. He's passionate about you know, Southeast Asian cuisine. So, you know, Mike and I were talking and I just asked him, you know, if he'd be interested in rebooting tasty. And so I reached out to the Gorms and, uh, they said they had absolutely no interest in selling Toro. It's really close to John's heart, but that they'd sell tasty, uh, you know, and it's not just the name. I mean, it's, it's the brand. Um, and it's the, it's the website. It's the, all of the menus, um, all the, uh, you know, recipes, um, you know, the right to everything that Tasty was. Uh, and I knew I didn't want to reopen where Tasty was because that's just too hard of an act to follow and there needed to be a pause. Um, and so we lock it down. Uh, there's another woman I was working with already who was a former Tasty manager named Kay Crossway, and we all agreed to to go in on it. Um, and, uh, and originally I was going to put a loyal legion, out in lake oswego but once we secure tasty like okay this is a no-brainer you know if we're going to try this let's do it out there because i think that 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 community is desperate for uh that kind of uh uh you know all day dining and um so i'm i'm super excited that we're going to be able to make it happen um and if it goes well we'll open a second one in in portland Um, So uh, there you go.
1: I think it's, uh, you know, one of the things that occurred early on in the pandemic is when we were talking about this and I talked to Craig uh, Peterson at Ringside, with the restaurants closing, I mean, the question I always had is what's gonna do better than the restaurants that had a big following in, in any particular space? So what's gonna do better than a restaurant that already had a big following or are the these landlords going to be better off starting with someone who didn't, you know, is, is building a restaurant from the ground up, and so taking the Tasty name? There are many names you can take out there, and the t- Tasty brand, because everybody knows what to expect—that it's going to be a, an incredible breakfast, lunch experience, and even dinner as well—is uh, a, I think, is a great idea. And there just aren't many restaurants that there are a lot of them that are that have closed, you know, I suppose someone could bring back a Pac-Pac, but I doubt Andy would ever let that happen. Who knows? You know him better than I do. But there aren't many names out there that you, could, uh, that you could latch onto and I think have a leg up for success before you open. So I think that's great and I wish you luck and I can't wait to try it. That'll be, uh, that'll be exciting. Yeah, you, great. Mentioned, you mentioned Ping and what else is going on out there as well?
3: Oh boy! uh we launched this um uh, this uh just able to go uh concept where we have seven different menus of uh you know all these chef developed menus that we to create kind of a virtual food hall uh and we've housed that at our at our catering company
1: mm-hmm. and you
3: know that's really fun and so we kind of embrace this whole ghost kitchen idea. But we wanted to make sure that the, you know, the the menus that were developed were actually, you know, there's not just some sort of corporate thing, but rather, Hey, let's bring in chefs and say, you know, have you always wanted to do a, you know, a hot fried chicken idea, or have you ever wanted to do, um, you know, whatever, you know, California burrito concept or whatever these ideas were that the chefs had. And we kind of aggregated them all together. And now if you go to chefstabletogo.com, you can, uh, see an order from a huge menu and you know the idea being that this the family can um order seven different things but have it delivered in one car um and we're gonna try to grow that um and so that's been a lot of work that my partner Catherine Buford has done uh over the last four months and you know hopefully that'll work out. Uh you know we feel really excited about it. Um what else? Uh yeah, we, we opened Phil's, uh, this, uh, fun donut concept, which is about the only idea I could say yes to in the middle of a pandemic is to say, Oh, well, blue stars, you know, the remaining blue stars and, uh, and Voodoo still have people standing out in front. So, uh, so we opened Phil's, which is, you know, specializes in Berliner style, uh, uh, donuts. And that's with Catherine Benvenuti, who is, a uh who is our our pastry chef at Bar King and really got a huge amount of press because of her talent. Um and so Catherine is uh you know now running that and that's done really well and it's in the original Blue Star space in uh you know Southwest thirteenth in Washington and those are just truly extraordinary, like next level foodie donuts. Um and you know so those are the new things, but mostly it's just been it's been just batting down hatches. Know, and protecting ourselves and, um, making sure that we're being financially as cautious as we can, such that when this pile of garbage, you know, situation is, is, is done, we'll be alive and ready to move forward. Um, so that's been 95% of our, uh, our activity is just making sure we're in a good position to survive, that the restaurants are okay. Um, you know, so I just, all my time is just spent, was spent negotiating, all of our leases and negotiating all of our debt and then transitioning to securing as much PPP and EIDL money as I could, and then transitioning you know, to applying for all the little things here and there that we could. And um, so it's just, you know, it's been kind of a huge amount of work for my team just to get us through all this. Um, and I mean, I feel terrible for single restaurants, you know, restaurants that don't have the support of a group uh, like us, because the amount of paperwork and mumbo jumbo, even with PPP forgiveness, is just a mountain of stuff, you know? And now the rules change, the tax law change. You're trying to take advantage of everything that they have. I mean, it's just, it, it is just, you know, the unseen bugaboo in all of these, uh, all of the federal subsidies is the amount of paperwork involved. And it's just suffocating. So, you know, we have three people in our place that are just dedicated to, Making sure we do all this correctly, um, and it's just a mountain of work, um, and you know that'll continue. Um, we have six places opening out in Lake Oswego with Tasty, and um, you know so there's a huge amount of work that has to go into project managing, and we have to do all that in the context where Chef Stable's income is down 80 uh, percent year on year. So you know I have to figure out how to survive. <laughs> you know, how to prepare for the future business with only 20% of our income. So, you know, I'm constantly panicked about, you know, how much can I lose every month uh, and still be okay come June, July. So yeah, it's just, you know, basically it's just a stress sandwich every single day, Um, which is exactly why I'm right now on a road trip (laughs) uh, to get out and clear my mind uh, so that when I come back, I feel recharged, you know?
1: Are you able to, Put, put things aside. Are you able to compartmentalize the stress and enjoy your family? Because that's, it's hard to do, but.
3: Um, yeah, I think I do okay. I mean, you know, it's a stressful business anyways, and we've been involved in a lot of stuff. So I think uh, I've become a little bit calloused uh, against stress. This is a different level of stress, but it's been, it's been okay. You know, I, I just keep telling myself and, you know, telling my family, it's like, look, even if everything goes to hell and and we go under, we're going to be okay. You know, um, uh, you know, my wife has a job and, uh, and, you know, we can, we can figure this out and, uh, but it's, you know, we're going to, we're going to make it work, but there's a period there where you just didn't know. You just didn't know if, how things were going to react. Are, are, are places going to, are people going to continue getting food to go? You know, there's a lot of, if you remember back, there were a lot of chefs that didn't want to do, to-go food and didn't do it because, they, because the level of anxiety about you know, having our staff anywhere near things or the risk of sending home to somebody COVID on a sandwich, I guess. You know? yeah. but there was a lot of concern out there about the ethics of doing to-go food. Um, and uh, so you know, now that proof has come out that you know, even restaurants that are open, You know, only according to the New York Times only account for 2% of all COVID related cases, whereas uh, private gatherings and people at home account for 75%.
1: Right. And and the restaurants have to close and Target and Costco can still be open. I know that people keep their masks on the whole time generally that they're in there. But, um, you know, I can tell you in
3: other parts of the country, they, they don't keep their masks on the whole time. Yeah. You know, I'm watching it. I'm watching it daily here. Um, and, um, uh, so it's, uh, you know, but yes, they do, but it's hard to say, uh, you know, you go through Costco and there's hundreds of people all right next to each other. Uh, you know, how, how, how can you say that that's more dangerous than in a restaurant where you never get within six feet of people and, you know, and and there is no data to support that, which is why the Oregon health authority and the governor can't cite anything when they say it's, it, we have to shut you down. It's just, it's superstition. And, and they, and they have to do something right. I get it. They have to feel like they're doing something. And, and so unfortunately in my mind, you know, uh, restaurants have just become one of the sacrificial lambs of, um, of, of the moment, you know, uh, right. and so, you know, we've, we've definitely taken a beating. Um, and, but, Let's let's be very clear. The 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 people that have taken the hardest beating uh, are places like um, uh, you know, let's say Mississippi Studios. I feel terrible for them. They you know they are just shut down, and who knows? Like there is no revenue there, right? And uh, no opportunity. So.
1: You can't can't. Well, you can take the music with you, but they have no way to to profit on that. So
3: yeah. Yeah,
1: no way. And you know, the other, Um, to to go back to what you were just talking about with to-go food and not knowing some things a while ago that you may know now, I still believe that uh, the really talented creative chefs out there were probably concerned, maybe not all of them, but probably concerned with their food in a box is a whole different experience than being served by friendly people with smiles, sitting at a nice table, having a drink, being able to order what you want when you want it instead of deciding a day in a, a day in advance that you're going to have something, it's a whole different experience. And I can see where many chefs would have thought, I, "Do I want perpetu- to perpetuate this experience with my food?" Because I have to tell you, eating out of bo- out of a box is just not something I love. I do it sometimes, but I can't wait to get back into restaurants and I would imagine that some of your chefs and a lot of people in the restaurants feel the same way about sustaining uh what you know the benefit of staying in front of people with that experience.
3: Yeah, I agree. I mean I we'll see. You know, I think that it's um you know my feeling before the only thing I was certain about is that the, the most popular restaurants had the best chance of surviving. Um and in general that is true except where things like with John and Renee. I mean, you know, Tacy and Oliver was the busiest restaurant in Portland. So okay, so that that's an exception to the rule. But there were other circumstances there that, you know, informed kind of why they closed. Right. Andy absolutely could have uh, stayed open and been a huge success for another twenty years, but he didn't want to. It wasn't just COVID. You know, he just doesn't like the direction that the industry is going in, and um, so I get that. You know, and uh, you know, in a moment now where uh, a white guy is potentially vilified for cooking uh, food, you know, from another culture, you know, that's who Andy is. So, you know, to to now be uh, under the scalpel because you know, that's who you are despite dedicating your life to honoring the cuisine of another culture. You know, I think that you you know, that's an odd environment to be cooking in. Um, and, but then I, you know, so you think of a place like beast an institution that's been around forever. Well, they're perfectly poorly designed for COVID, you know, a 24 seat table with everybody sitting next to each other. It's like Holdfast, a, a restaurant we partnered in. Uh, it was just an awesome guest experience, but basically 16 people sitting around a counter right next to each other. You know, that doesn't work. Um, so, you know, I think that it's kind of the fast casual places that, you know, the most the best fast casual places are most popular to survive. Pizza, you know, the only businesses I know out there that are doing better in COVID than they were before are places like a Pizza Shoals where they just literally sell out every day of their pizza with, you know, half the staff. Right. So those are examples of places that are actually doing better now in terms of, you know, net income than they were before. But in general, um, you know, you in general, this has been unkind to uh, everybody. Uh, and you have to be fortunate enough to be a business that has already established a to-go thing or pizza. <laughs> pizza is a great, These and donuts are a like great equalizer.
1: Right. right.
3: And we've benefited from that with Oven and Shaker. Oven and Shaker has done Is our only non-fast casual place that has done well, you know, qualified well in COVID. Um, and, uh, and just people can't get enough pizza to go. Um, and, uh, you know, but I, I pray that it changes and that we return back to what it was because, you know, currently culturally, how many places do we have where as a community, everybody goes and gathers around and kind of hangs out together. Um, You know, restaurants, you know, restaurants, sporting events. I mean, I can't really think of very much more. You know, I think that right. churches probably have a role in that. Certainly not as much in Portland as in uh, other parts of the, of the country. But, um, you know, there aren't many places that are truly important to the social fabric uh, as restaurants. And, um, you know, the, Portland as a community really looked around it and was proud of it and loved going out, you know, so I hope that returns, I hope that that overwhelms uh, the fear, the reluctance people might have, um, because otherwise we're just going to have to reinvent ourselves, you know, completely,
1: well, or just simply th- we'll I go through a roll. They have to eat every day, so they, and they still like the social aspect, just because we've all been home for most of the last eight months doesn't mean we like it, so they'll come out, but my, yeah. I, I'm concerned with, you know, you talk about hold fast and beast. Do you think as, and you just said, they're they're incredibly wonderful experiences, but do you foresee that any operators would just stay away from that model in case something like this pandemic happens again? As great as it is, it would be tempting to say, okay, well, we can enjoy this again. But on the other hand, in the back of your mind, now you're gonna always have almost like an addict always have this thought that we got to prevent against this. Do you see that as a big factor going forward?
3: Well, if it is, then, if it is, it's terrible. (laughs) That's all I can say. If that's really where we end up going, it's just, it's just, it's miserable. Uh, So I hope that's not what it is. Um, You know, I think we'll, we'll find out, but um, you know, if we're going to live with this permanent fear of, you know, you know, a new pandemic arriving. I'm not sure why it would. It's not like this somehow is, uh, you know, there's like a gene that popped out of the bottle with, you know, these these pandemics have been occurring, you know, uh, over the years. And, you know, this is one to really do kind of the worst case scenario. Um, So hopefully we'll develop a better infrastructure nationally to be able to respond to it more cohesively and then be able to, you know, for instance, mitigate it by getting the vaccines out faster. Just the national response has been pathetic uh, in that regard. And um, but, but they are yeah. ahead of
1: the they are ahead of those initial predictions that were, you know, the initial predictions is we won't have a vaccine until the middle of the summer, 2021, late, maybe even 2022. So at least it's been developed faster than yeah. They the development time is amazing,
3: right? Yeah, um, and so that feels encouraging Um, and it's encouraging to see how different other communities uh, or countries that took it really seriously were able to really mitigate the damage. Um, And there was a great article in the New York times yesterday about what's it like in countries that have it under control. Right. And people are back in bars. Nobody's wearing masks. And I was going to send that around to all my partners today saying, see, there's hope. You know, once this thing is under control, people will want to return to what we were before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I pray and hope that that's the case. Um, I don't, you know, I don't know if it will. But, you know, the only, the only option we have right now is just to keep trudging along, you know, right. and just to do the smartest things we can. So we're taking a risk by opening places in June but you know, we open in June. It feels like, well, with all the outdoor seating we have, it's really like opening in October. Um, so hopefully we'll be able to, you know, hopefully by October, everybody will feel good. Uh, we know we can operate at a reduced model, labor model, so we know we don't need to have all the staff that we did before. Um, so hopefully that's right. And, uh, and we got, you know, we worked with uh, a group of the, uh, you know, commercial development coming out there and its partners that gave us the best deal we could have ever hoped for so you're kind of like, alright, well it's kind of hard to say no in those circumstances but it could still be it could you know, it could be an absolute home run which is what I'm hoping for or it could be a, a strategic bad decision because we moved too quickly and I just don't know but I, I refuse to believe that somehow we're in a changed future where we'll never get back to some semblance of what we, we were. Um, I just don't, I think we'll be more cautious. I think that people, you know, 70 and over will probably be very cautious for longer. Um, but, uh, you know, oh, well, you know, we'll just have to learn to survive without that demographic.
1: Yeah. Hey, I'm on, it's not long until I'm there. Don't discount us. Well, I'm not, it's not around the corner. <laughs> some, we're all, get, we're some all some getting there fast. Worried. We're all getting there faster than we want to. Believe me, everything's That's moving right. pretty quickly. But so, Kurt, I really—you know—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm ending this conversation with you saying you think that we'll be back at some point. That this isn't going to affect us forever. I'm—I'm I'm encouraged to hear that. I think it's as you said, it's going to take a little while. It's not only whether people desire to get back to restaurants, but also. People have been sustaining some big financial hits, you know, personally. So they're going to need the income to dine the way they used to dine and travel the way they used to travel. And uh, hopefully when everything's back to normal, all those things will slide right back into place. So, um, yeah, uh, one good thing about the government pumping
3: billions of dollars into the economy is that I think we know that the economy at large is going to be robust once we're through this. The question is just, you know, how many places will be open, how many concert venues will be open, how many restaurants will survive. But I really believe that two years from now, we're going to go through a huge, a huge rebirth. That I'm convinced about. Like once people do feel completely safe, once everybody's vaccinated, then I think we're going to go through really exciting resurgence. And as a city, what we have to be worried about the most between now and then is keeping all of the talent we have. Um, because it's not like the talent we have is somehow, you know, we we deserve it. You know, we don't deserve the talent we have. You know, people chose us. If you, I don't know how many people you've interviewed over time, but I will guarantee you that if they're restaurant owners, there's less than 5% of them that are from Portland. Oh, you know, you, I can you only go back...
1: I've been saying this for a long time. If you go back and listen to... We're now, this is the start of the... Eighth year of the podcast, which is hard to believe. But if you go back and listen to a lot of them and take the time, most everybody that has been on the podcast did not start here. There have been a few, but most people came here because San Francisco was too expensive, or something like that. Yeah. So. Exactly.
3: um, I mean, think of you know. I mean, even the people are still here. You know, the the guy that's here in town. Well, there's my best friend, Leather Stores. That's been here. You know, we grew up together here, but. Aside from that, you have to search long and hard for somebody uh, that's from Portland. Uh, you know, guy that owns Mama Bird, he went to Wilson High School with me. Joel Stocks went to Wilson as well. Uh, you know, the guy from Holdfast. But aside from that, you know, Peter Cho was from Eugene. Uh, that's about as close as you get. Everybody else is from somewhere far away. You know, they chose to came, come here. Right. And, well, they, um, Peter and,
1: started in Eugene and went to New York and all over the place and came back. He didn't just come directly to Portland.
3: Yeah. So Yeah. So, you know, we have to if we're not if we don't recover quickly enough to provide opportunities for people, you know, then we, we, we lose the critical driver of our industry, which is talent. Right? You know, Portland's not Portland without Gabe Rucker, without Kathy Wims, without Andy Ricker, and you know, without John Gorham, without you know, Peter Cho without, you know, whatever. It's like, these are that defined Portland. Right.
1: You know? and, and, uh, and based on what you just said, it is never going to be the same, but hopefully it's going to be great in a different way going forward. Yeah. Eh?
3: Hopefully we can, you know, hopefully the dining public will show that they're willing to support independent restaurants because that's the underlying fabric of what drove the industry to begin with. Right. Right. It's like people wanted, something different. They didn't want chains. There's fewer chains per capita in Portland, than any city in America. And, you know, and there's, and there's a reason for that. It's because the dining public was there wanting that. And, you know, that's, that's the underlying conditions that bring people in. Um, And so hopefully the dining public will get back out there and, and maintain that demand uh, so that there are opportunities for, you know, for these amazing people that have come our city and really invested in, in in kind of our the social fabric. You know that's that's the hope. The, the tragedy would be if if we just start losing people.
1: That yeah, and also the hotels have a vested interest in getting people in here, and they have some pockets. Uh, you know they got hit worldwide, but still they have a vested interest in their own industry. So that, I think that's gonna. That may help as yeah, well. Yeah, maybe,
3: but you know, you know, we have a Lardo down at the uh, down at the Cosmopolitan in Vegas, and if you want to talk about places that have money to bring in tourists, like Portland can't hold a candle to Vegas, right? You know, there's a, there are other communities out there. There are New Yorks. There are other places where the deep pockets in those cities, you know, make our deep pockets look, you know, like
1: chump change. Right, so, but still, so there's still there's still the Hyatt, and there's still some pretty big hotels that. You know can can borrow from peter to pay paul to help stay open in portland they, right. they have all over
3: the country right
1: right right their their have, everywhere so why, have,
3: why portland instead of
1: you know i don't know oh you know, yeah but they, like they don't Dallas. want to shut down they don't want to shut down what they just built you know the hyatt the yeah. Centric didn't even really open so what are you looking forward to most with your daughter down south
3: uh, well, the whole goal of the trip is that we're uh, we we'll leave Omaha in a couple of days, and we're gonna do a tour of these African safaris uh, throughout the, <laughs> the southern part of the U.S. So we go down towards Oklahoma City, um, and then we'll go outside of Dallas, and then down to Austin. Um, and essentially, what we're doing is we're just we're going to all these amazing safaris that exist, like 1500 acre safaris, where you drive through and there's lions and tigers and Uh, She's totally obsessed with uh, with those animals as a four year old, Um, and so I thought, yeah, what the hell? Let's just do a road trip together, kind of have a special time together. Um, You know, we have a camper, so we're going to be completely safe and socially distanced. It'll just be the two of us hanging out. Um,
1: That's fantastic. So, just so you know, uh, back in two thousand two and two thousand three, I did a similar thing with baseball parks and my kids. And I had, yeah. no, I had no intention of leaving Connecticut. It's um, what, When I first landed on the Oregon coast down in Bandon and made my way up and then got to Portland, I fell in love with it. So I think a lot of people in Portland are hoping you don't fall in love with Savannah or somewhere <laughs> like that. And don't worry. Yeah, that you're going to be with yeah. us for a while. I think a lot of people are depending on you and uh, look forward to all the, that you bring. No, you know, man, I did. I
3: did my whole globe trotting thing. Uh, for 15 years. So, I mean, yeah, yeah after 15 years away. Doesn't mean that you won't
1: necessarily go, you know, this looks better than Portland right now. So... Um, yeah,
3: no, Portland, Portland's my home. So yeah, well, that's there's no good. Answer that.
1: All right, Kurt. I really appreciate you taking the time and I want to catch up with of you course. again, but I want to let you go. You've taken more time than, we, uh, than I asked you for, so I really appreciate it. And... Um, no problem. It's, it's also nice to kick off... 2021 with an interview with you because it's important. When every every time we hit a new year, it's crazy because we never expected this podcast to go this long. Right.
3: So right. well, good for um, you, right? It's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, it's really cool. It's so it's the one consistent I had in 2020 to keep putting out uh, podcasts. Uh, we can't travel. I can't do food events. I hope maybe. Kurt, when we uh, when we come out of this, we can do something at uh, Tasty or King or somewhere. We can do a Portland Food Adventures event. That would be great. That would be great. The um, the one that we did, I think it was 2013 or 14 at Bruner. just came across my Facebook memories. So oh, really? Yeah, it was really wonderful. And, you know, I look back on all those things and uh, they're fantastic, including doing a bunch of them with John at at uh, Tasty and Alder, you mentioned that. We did the opening dinner there. We did the opening dinner at NBC. Um, So I miss being able to do those and plan them. Every time I have an idea now, it goes nowhere. Can't do anything with it for a while, so.
3: No, you can't. So Wait till spring. You can do like an outdoor Portland food adventure.
1: Yeah, you know, also I'll I'll tell you what we are doing, which is, I'll just mention it now. And if you know anybody, we're doing a uh, trip on the Snake River with Jonathan Gill, the chef at Ringside, in July for July Fourth. So, well, have fun. That's something we can look forward to. But we still, you know, people have been a little slow to uh, to jump at that. We have we're about half full right now, and I'm looking forward. That's something I have to look forward to. So, um, it'll be pretty that's cool. awesome. All right, man. Thanks so much. All right. So, have a and enjoy your time with Cora as well. Thank you, Chris. Have a good day.
2: Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye. Right at the Fork is hosted and produced by Chris Angeles and Court Johnson. Connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Food Podcast PDX or on Facebook at Right at the Fork or online at Right at the